Welcome to the Convivial Society, especially the many of you for whom this is the first actual installment to hit your inbox. If you signed up in the last week or so, you may want to check out the brief orientation to the newsletter I sent out recently to new readers. In this week's email, you'll find the full installment of the newsletter, which contains the essay I'll read here, followed by links to a variety of items, some of them with a bit of additional commentary from me. As always, thanks for listening. Outsourcing Virtue In lines he composed for a play in the mid-1930s, T.S. Eliot wrote of those who constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. That last line has always struck me as a rather apt characterization of a certain technocratic impulse, which presumes that technobureaucratic structures and processes can eliminate the necessity of virtue, or maybe even human involvement altogether. We might just as easily speak of systems so perfect that no one will need to be wise or temperate or just. Just adhere to the code or the technique with unbending consistency, and all will be well. This dream, as Eliot put it, remains explicitly compelling in many quarters. It is also tacitly embedded in the practices fostered by many of our digital devices, tools, and institutions. So it's worth thinking about how this dream manifests itself today and why it can so easily take on a nightmarish quality. In Eliot's age, increasingly elaborate and Byzantine bureaucracies automated human decision-making in the pursuit of efficiency, speed, and scale, thus outsourcing human judgment and consequently responsibility. One did not require virtue or good judgment, only a sufficiently well-articulated system of rules. Of course, under these circumstances, bureaucratic functionaries might become papier-mâché Mephistopheles, in Conrad's memorable phrase, and they may abet forms of what Arendt later called banal evil. But the scale and scope of modern societies also seem to require such structures in order to operate reasonably well, although this is certainly debatable. Whether strictly necessary or not, these systems introduce a paradox. In order to ostensibly serve human society, they must eliminate or displace elements of human experience. Of course, what becomes evident eventually is that the systems are not in fact serving human ends, at least not necessarily so. To take a different class of example, we might also think of the modern fixation with technological fixes to what may often be irreducibly social and political problems. In a prescient 2020 essay about the pandemic, Ed Yong observed that instead of solving social problems, the U.S. uses techno-fixes to bypass them, plastering the wounds instead of removing the sources of injury. And that's if people even accept a solution on offer. No need for good judgment, responsible governance, self-sacrifice, or mutual care if there's an easy technological fix to ostensibly solve the problem. No need, in other words, to be good, so long as the right technological solution can be found. Likewise, there's no shortage of examples involving algorithmic tools intended to outsource human judgment. Most recently, I encountered the case of NarcsCare, reported in Wired. NarcsCare is an analytics tool and care management platform that purports to instantly and automatically identify 
a patient's risk of misusing opioids. The article details the case of a 32-year-old woman suffering from endometriosis whose pain medications were cut off without explanation or recourse because she triggered a high-risk score from the proprietary algorithm. You can read the article for further details, which are both fascinating and disturbing, but here's a pertinent part from my purposes. APRIS is adamant that NARC's care is not meant to supplant a doctor's diagnosis, but physicians ignore these numbers at their peril. Nearly every state now uses APRIS software to manage its prescription drug monitoring programs, and most legally require physicians and pharmacists to consult them when prescribing controlled substances on penalty of losing their license. This is an obviously complex and sensitive issue, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that the use of these algorithmic systems exacerbates the same demoralizing opaqueness, evasion of responsibility, and cover-your-ass dynamics that have characterized analog bureaucracies. It becomes difficult to assume responsibility for a particular decision made in a particular case. Or, to put it otherwise, it becomes too easy to claim the algorithm made me do it. And it becomes so in part because the existing bureaucratic dynamics all but require it. This technocratic impulse is alive and well, and we'll come back to it in a moment. But it occurs to me that we might also profitably invert Eliot's claim and apply it to our digital media environment, in which we experience systems so imperfect that it turns out everyone will need to be really, really good. Let me explain what I mean by this. The thought occurred to me when I read yet another tweet advocating for the cultivation of digital media literacy. You should know that, at one level, I think this is fine and possibly helpful under certain circumstances. However, I also think it underestimates or altogether ignores the non-intellectual elements of the problem. It seems unrealistic, for example, to expect that someone who is likely already swamped by the demands of living in a complex, fast-paced, and precarious social milieu will have the leisure and resources to thoroughly do their own research about every dubious or contested claim they encounter online, or to adjudicate the competing claims made by those who are supposed to know what they are talking about. There's a lot more to be said about this dynamic, of course. It raises questions about truth, certainty, trust, authority, expertise, and more, but here I simply want to highlight the moral demand, because searching for the truth, or a sufficient approximation of it, is more than a merely intellectual activity. It involves, for example, humility, courage, and patience. It presumes a willingness to break with one's tribe or social network with all the risks that may entail. In short, you need to be not just clever, but virtuous. And depending on the degree to which you lived online, you would need to do this persistently, over time. And recently, of course, during a health crisis that has generated an exhausting amount of uncertainty, and a host of contentious debates about private and public actions. This is but one case, the one which initially led me to invert Eliot's line. It doesn't take a great deal of imagination to conjure up other similar examples of the kind of virtue our digital devices and networks tacitly demand of us. Consider the discipline required to responsibly direct one's attention from moment to moment, rather than responding with Pavlovian alacrity when our devices beckon us or the degree of restraint necessary to avoid the casual voyeurism that powers so much of our social media feeds, or how those same platforms can be justly described as machines for the inducement of petty vindictiveness 
and less than righteous indignation. Or alternatively, as carefully calibrated engines of sloth, greed, envy, despair, and self-loathing. The point is not that our digital media environment necessarily generates vice. Rather, it's that it constitutes an ever-present field of temptation, which can require, in turn, monastic degrees of self-discipline to manage. I'm reminded, for example, of how years ago Evgeny Morosov described buying a timed safe in which to lock his smartphone, and how, when he discovered he could unscrew the timing mechanism, he locked the screwdriver in there too. Under certain circumstances, and for certain people, maintaining a level of basic human decency or even psychic well-being may feel like an exercise in moral sainthood. Perhaps this explains the recent interest in Stoicism, although we do well to remember Pascal's pointed criticism of the Stoics. They conclude that we can always do what we can sometimes do. We alternate, then, between environments that seek to render virtue superfluous and environments that tacitly demand a high degree of virtue in order to operate benignly. Not surprisingly, there is a reciprocal relationship between these two dynamics. Failure to exhibit the requisite virtue creates a demand for the enhancement of rule-based systems to regulate human behavior. Speech on social media platforms is a case in point that comes readily to mind. The scale and speed of communication on social media platforms generate infamously vexing issues related to speech and expression, which are especially evident during a volatile election season or a global pandemic. These issues do not, in my view, admit of obvious solutions beyond shutting down the platforms altogether. That not being a presently viable option, companies and lawmakers are increasingly pressured to apply ever more vigilant and stringent forms of moderation, often with counterproductive results. This is yet another complex problem, of course, but it also illustrates the challenge of governing by codes that seek to manage human behavior by generating rules of conduct with attendant consequences for their violation, which, again, may be the only viable way of governing human behavior at the numeric, spatial, and temporal scale of digital information environments. In any case, the impulse is to conceive of moral and political challenges as technical problems admitting of engineered solutions. To be clear, it's not that codes and systems are useless. They can have their place, but they require sound judgment in their application, precisely to the degree that they fail to account for the multiplicity of meaningful variables and goods at play in human relations. Trouble arises when we are tempted to make the code and its application coterminous which would require a rule to cover every possible situation and extenuating circumstance ad infinitum. This is the temptation that animates the impulse to apply a code with blind consistency, as if this would be equivalent to justice itself. The philosopher Charles Taylor has called this tendency in modern liberal societies code fetishism, and it ought to be judiciously resisted. According to Taylor, Code fetishism tends to forget the background which makes sense of any code, the variety of goods which rules and norms are meant to realize, as well as the vertical dimension which rises above all of these. Code fetishism, in this sense, is not unlike what Jacques Ellul called technique, a relentless drive toward efficiency that eventually became an end in itself, having lost sight of the goods for the sake of which efficiency was pursued in the first place. As an aside, 
I'll note that code fetishism may be something like a default setting for modern democratic societies, which have a tendency to tilt toward technocracy, while of course also harboring potent counter-tendencies. The tilting follows from a preference for proceduralism, or the conviction that an ostensibly neutral set of rules and procedures are an adequate foundation for a just society, particularly in the absence of substantive agreement about the nature of a good society. In this way, there's a long-standing symbiosis between modern politics and modern technology. They both traffic in the ideal of neutrality, neutral tools, neutral processes, and neutral institutions. It should not be surprising, then, that contemporary institutions turn toward technological tools to shore up the ideal of neutrality. The presumably neutral algorithm will solve the problem of bias in criminal sentencing, or loan applications, or hiring, for example. And neither should it be surprising to discover that what we think of as modern society, built upon this tacit pact between ostensibly neutral political and technological structures, begins to fray and lose its legitimacy as the supposed neutrality of both becomes increasingly implausible. I realize this paragraph calls for a book of footnotes, but it will have to do for now. As it turns out, Charles Taylor also wrote the foreword to Ivan Illich's Rivers North of the Future, and, caveat lector, new readers, at the Convivial Society, we eventually come around to Illich at some point. In his foreword, Taylor explored Illich's seemingly eccentric arguments about the origins of modernity in the corruption of the Christian Church. It's an eccentric but compelling argument. However, I'll leave its merits to one side here in order to hone in on Taylor's comments about code fetishism, or, to recall where we began, the impulse to build systems so perfect no one will need to be good. We think we have to find the right system of rules, of norms, and then follow them through unfailingly, Taylor wrote. We cannot see any more, he continued, the awkward way these rules fit enfleshed human beings. We fail to notice the dilemmas they have to sweep under the carpet. These codes often spring from decent motives and good intentions, but they may be all the worse for it. Ours is a civilization concerned to relieve suffering and enhance human well-being on a universal scale unprecedented in history, Taylor argued, and which, at the same time, threatens to imprison us in forms that can turn alien and dehumanizing. Codes, even the best codes, Taylor concludes, can become idolatrous traps that tempt us to complicity in violence. Or, as Illich argued, if you forget the particular, bodily, situated context of the other, then the freedom to do good by them, exemplified in the story of the Good Samaritan, can become the imperative to impose the good as you imagine it on them. You have, as Illich bluntly put it, the basis on which one might feel responsible for bombing the neighbor for his own good. In Taylor's reading, Illich reminds us not to become totally invested in the code. We should find the center of our spiritual lives beyond the code, deeper than the code, in the networks of living concern which are not to be sacrificed to the code, which must even, from time to time, subvert it. This message, Taylor acknowledges, comes out of a certain theology, but it should be heard by everybody. And for what it's worth, I second Taylor on that note. My chief aim in this post has been to suggest that the code fetishism Taylor described manifests itself both intellectually and materially. 
which is to say that it can be analyzed as a principle animating formal legal codes, and it can be implicit in our material culture, informing the technologies that shape our habits and assumptions. To put it another way, dealing with humanity's imperfections through systems, tools, and techniques is a long-standing strategy. It has its benefits, but we need to be mindful of its limitations, especially when ignoring those limitations can lead to demoralizing and destructive consequences. As I was wrapping up this post, I caught a tweet from Timothy Burke that rather nicely sums this up, and I'll give him the last word. Commenting on an article arguing that student engagement data should replace student recommendations, Burke observed, This is one of those pieces that identifies a problem that's rooted in the messy and flawed humanity of the systems we make, and then imagines that there is some metric we could make that would flush that humanity out in order to better judge some kind of humanity. It will be worth pondering this impulse to alleviate the human condition by eliminating elements of human experience.